You're listening to World Building for Masochists. And we're wondering why we do this to ourselves. We have no answer to this question. Uh, I'm Darcy Little Badger. <laughs> I'm Cass Morris. I'm Marshall Ryan Moresca. I'm Rowena Miller, and this is episode 96, The Big Blue World, Oceanic World Building. Welcome back, listeners, to episode 96, and welcome, Darcy. We're so excited to have you on the show. Oh, I'm so happy to be here. Well, I am I am super excited to dig into this topic um, today because I've watched way too many nature documentaries <laughs> and, and know... <laughs> I, I know that I find fish and their ilk and everything else about the ocean fascinating. So I think this is going to be fantastic. But Darcy, can you tell us a little bit about you? Well, I'm Darcy Little Badger, and I am the writer of stories, everything ranging from short stories to two published novels and a third on the way. Hmm. Um, but <laughs> before that, I was a scientist, and I, I got my PhD in oceanography at Texas A&M University. Um, for studying plankton. Uh, so I, I'm excited to talk a little bit about world building as it applies to the ocean and how I've used my scientific background to try to enrich some of the sci-fi and fantasy that I write. Oh, that sounds awesome. Plankton, that's so... That, I'm sorry, I'm geeking already. This is going to be so much fun. I mean, plankton, I could, I could so go on fun. about plankton. <laughs> Do you want this to be one hour of plankton? Because we can't... Kind of yes. Kind of yes. I think we're just going to have to stick with overall oceanic world building, and then we have to have you back on for just plankton. A plankton specific. We'll have a plankton special. Well, let's talk about red tides. <laughs> While we're on the subject of your, of your sci-fi and fantasy, can you tell us a few of the things that you've written so that our listeners know what to add to their TBRs? Oh, thank you. Uh, so my, my two books are, are young adult fantasy. Well, the first one, Alatsue, is a fantasy mystery, and it's about a Lipan Apache teen, and she solves the murder of her family. And to do this, she actually has help from her friends and a ghost dog named Kirby, because she's able to raise the ghosts of animals. Uh, now, that wasn't too ocean heavy, but there is a scene in that book that has a ghost ocean that includes prehistoric oceanic creatures. So that was a lot of fun Ooh. to write. Uh, my second book, uh, Snake Falls to Earth, is actually the recipient of a nebula uh, and a, a Newberry honor and was on the National Book Award long list. And it's a, it's a work of indigenous futurisms that envisions a near future version of Texas, um, but it also takes place in this complete secondary fantasy world. And that's where I put a lot of world building um, just to imagine this place called the reflecting world. And these characters from these two different worlds, Earth in the near future and the reflecting world, they eventually meet and help each other um, save their friends and their family. And I am working on a third that is going to be fantasy. And hopefully people who like my other stuff will, will like to read this one, too. I'm certain they will. And I have to go back to the ghost ocean thing because that <laughs> has already blown my mind a little bit because I'm thinking about, like, how much land used to be underwater. And so you've got all these fossils and, and, and mineral sediments that used to be alive and things. And oh, my God, that's so cool. <laughs> Yes. And growing up, so as a child, I moved a lot. And so I did spend a few years in Coralville, Iowa, when I was in elementary school. And you can see the name Coral is in the name. And, and there are these these stretches of, of, uh, of land where the fossils of this ancient ocean were just everywhere. And so as a child, I saw these and it really made my imagination wonder what the world used to be like millions of years ago when everything that I see now on land was uh, submerged under an ocean that's now gone. And, and I guess that thought that even oceans themselves aren't eternal. <laughs> I mean, nothing, nothing really is, even the earth, but just knowing that there used to be oceans that no longer exist or that oceans are, are expanding, like the Atlantic is currently very slowly expanding. Uh, it was just really cool. And I, I think that a lot of times uh, as we learn about the world around us, it does inspire uh, the fantasy stories that we end up writing. 
I was just reading something earlier today, not an ocean, but a different body of water, about how um, the Great Salt Lake is drying up. Oh. It's it's going to be gone soon. Yeah. Mm. And and the added danger on top of the regular danger of that is that the the like the sediments in it are toxic. There's like arsenic in the sand, essentially. And so if if it dries up and the dust blows all of that into Salt Lake City, mm. that's a big old problem. But it's it's exactly the kind of problem that speculative fiction, I feel like, <laughs> can draw from. Yes. I, I feel like that's a thing we missed when we had our disasters episode. Yeah, know. I wasn't we expecting um, we didn't sudden arsenic. Arsenic wind. dust cloud from <laughs> dried up lake. We missed that one. I hadn't heard about it yet, so yeah. So, <laughs> that's going on the list. Yeah, it's um, just water in general. <laughs> You could do a whole episode about uh, the future of, of water or lack thereof. Um, I think that would be very interesting. We had some of that in, in our, our climate fiction episode a while back with yes. Brandon Crilly. There's there's a lot of overlap in there as well. Fascinating stuff. Also terrifying to me. I'm terrified of open water. Uh, so yeah. this will be, I'm being a big brave girl for this episode. <laughs> And as fascinating and gorgeous as the ocean is, there there's good reason to be terrified of it. Like, you know, you step into the water, you're stepping into the food chain, and you're far <laughs> from the top of it. Yeah, I've got to say, um, the reason that I... So I... Are <laughs> you thinking about getting eaten right now? <laughs> it, it, is, it is scary. Like, I, I didn't... I grew up... Um, when I lived in Texas uh, as a young person, a teenager in high school, I lived in Texarkana. So that's a, that's a long way from the ocean. So when I went to uh, college as an undergrad, it wasn't even on my radar as something that I'd be interested in um, until I took an intro-oceanography course. And as part of these oceanography courses, we were lucky enough to travel to the Sargasso Sea to do some just to see what it's like to research on a, a research vessel. And at one point, me and, you know, the other students and our professor were on this little boat and went to the open ocean. Uh, and if you've ever seen the Sargasso Sea, it's just this vibrant blue. I had never been to the deep ocean before. This wasn't the coast. Like, it was, it was probably a thousand meters deep or maybe more uh, when we went out there. And our professor said, do you want to go swimming? <laughs> Uh, so all of us, we, we hadn't expected to go swimming. We were in our jeans and our t-shirts and, you know, so we just jumped in the, in the ocean with our clothes and I did not anticipate that my jeans would start to soak up the water and get like saturated and heavy. And I, I was struggling to stay afloat and under my feet, it was, it was so deep. You definitely can't see the bottom, but it's almost like you can feel that depth beneath you. At least I could. <laughs> And I realized that there are probably things under my feet right now that I cannot even imagine. And that humans, especially landlocked humans like me, are just so ill-suited to survive in this open ocean environment. And I knew so little about it. And I was being dragged down. <laughs> and I was faced with the prospect of either, like, taking off my jeans and, like, doggy paddling <laughs> to the boat without my pants in front of all my peers. Or just letting the deep ocean take me. Uh, so I somehow managed to... to avoid either of those by just like desperately <laughs> flailing around and getting to the boat but it was that moment of fear of the unknown that made me really into the ocean honestly I wanted to understand all of these things that were below me and so I, I made that switch from like I, I decided I'm not going to study English I'm going to study geoscience and then the ocean and it was it was the uh, it was the fear that got me <laughs> Love it. I also love how relatable it is that there's the choice between I can embarrass myself in front of everyone or I can just let the void swallow me. And you actually had that moment of decision. Both those choices seem valid. <laughs> yeah. They both seem valid. Like, been there, been there, but I didn't have a void handy. I could die of embarrassment or die of void. Yeah, knowing knowing me. I, I think I was teetering. <laughs> Towards the uh, the embarrassment side, I was like, okay, I'm I'm like two seconds away from unbuttoning these pants, but really would have been unpleasant. Shifting gears a little bit, I'm curious, and we ask almost all of our guests this, but when you're world building, like what what do you like about it? What what gets you excited, invested, interested in world building? 
Yeah, it's sometimes for me, it's really these connections that you can make about the world of your story as you are writing the story. And I say that because I'm definitely a pantser. Um, I have a friend of mine who is a big planner, especially when it comes to world building. Like she she has notebooks full of, of, of planets that exist in this world. And some of these places, the characters will, will never even visit or, you know, they're just there. But, but having that adds to like the, the richness and makes it easier for her to write. But for, for me, I, I get this idea in my head of what I want the world to be. And I start writing and I realize as I'm writing, I, it's almost like a process where the more I write, the more, the more my imagination fills in these blanks. And, and sometimes that leads to, to moments, to details about the world that actually like charm me. <laughs> I was like, oh, hey, I can't believe I thought of that. I guess I'm, <laughs> I might be better at this than I thought. And, and uh, especially like I'm thinking when the snake falls to earth when I, when I made this secondary world. Um, there's animal people in it. And so uh, one thing I was thinking, well, what kind of cities would exist there if cities did exist? And it's like, oh, what if what if there's a city like along the river and it's made by beavers? And, and, and so that whole thing started to take off. And I actually have a lot of details that I was imagining about this city that never made it into the book. But hopefully you kind of get little glimpses of it. Well, that is charming as all heck. That's, it really is. Yeah. <laughs> I think that there needs to be a children's book about. I do. I can see it. I can, I can. I can see it. Like, I can see it happening. One of those books where you can like lift the flaps and see inside. <laughs> oh, yes. Yeah, that would be so cool. Be so <laughs> I love that. I love that element of discovery. That that almost like the world existed before you started to build it, and then you uncover things as you as you think more and more. Yeah. So. I am sure, as a expert in the field, that you have encountered oceanic world building done well in worlds and oceanic world building not done so well. And I guess I'm curious what some of the worlds done well are that you've seen in terms of how they think about about oceans and fitting them into their worlds. I was actually thinking about this um, before the podcast, and I, I like have this this odd response because it's world building in a book. But there's no words. Um, I'm I'm now holding up uh, an illustrated book called The Wanderer, and it's entirely illustrated, no words. But it's it's essentially a journey across the ocean, and like various fantasy creatures exist in it, and just beautiful, detailed worlds. And what I loved about this book is it really fully exploited <laughs> the the variety that you get when you when you go into an ocean environment, like. The surface ocean is so different from the deep ocean and the coastal ocean is so different from the open ocean and even different like Arctic oceans are different from oceans near the equator. You know, it's it's it, it's just really it's not just one big blue vast monolith of a place, even though sometimes it may feel that way, especially when you're on the boat looking out and see nothing but water. Um, so I, I actually I recommend for anyone who who really is is a fan of beautiful illustrations like these are all just black and white um highly detailed illustrations and uh very much fancy elements are incorporated in this book i, I do suggest you check out the wanderer by peter vandenend now the other question uh, uh world's done wrong you don't <laughs> so have to call it don't... out by name you, yes. you can you can yes. <laughs> we recognize i will definitely because like i i try not to like call out specific books but i can say as as someone who works who worked a little bit on a research vessel as a researcher sometimes i'm reading a book and i'm really excited because it takes place on a on a vessel and there's going to be some cool thing that happens in the middle of the ocean uh, and then I start reading and I'm like oh my gosh this is like I don't want to be that scientist but sometimes I'm that <laughs> scientist but only when it stretches like your your ability to suspend disbelief just to the the ultimate edges but also sometimes I read a book so I am starting like I haven't finished this but I am starting into the drowning deep um, by Mira Grant. And so far, I'm very impressed. <laughs> so I got to say that when you do encounter a book that that's like, oh, yeah, this kind of validates my experience. 
Um, that's that's a refreshing thing indeed. So I'm that one has like some creepy deep sea mermaids or something's going to happen. So I'm I'm excited to find out what. And it's been out a while, but if you haven't checked it out, I so far I can recommend it. <laughs> I do feel like sometimes like knowing too much can ruin a book for you. Mm -hmm. Like, <laughs> you know, it's like, oh, this is probably fun for somebody who doesn't know. Yeah, that's uh, sometimes I do wish that I could just like get rid of that because I do gen generally believe that stories don't have to be peer reviewed. In other words, it's okay to kind of <laughs> go. I, I myself go fast and loose sometimes with science when I'm writing. Um, and you know what? I, I know that there's probably some people out there who read that and go like, oh my gosh, I just can't believe this. It's ruining the experience. And I'm like, I'm so sorry about that. <laughs> I, I'm a big believer of the idea that like if the Venn diagram overlap of the people who are going to read this story and the people who are going to know that your science is wrong is like really narrow, it's fine. <laughs> yes. <laughs> just go with it. There, there are like historical things that I'm like, you know, it. I am one of five people that is not going to enjoy this. It's okay. This wasn't for me. That's all right. Yeah. I can I can appreciate That's other things. Completely valid. And, and as a writer, I recognize that too. Like, I am definitely know there's probably lots of people and my stories aren't for them. And I'm like, that's fine. Like, that I'm, like, I'm looking for the people who do connect. That is one of the most important lessons, I think, to yeah. learn as any kind of creator that, you know what, mm -hmm. this is not going to be for everybody. And that's... That's okay. That's okay. <laughs> it's going to find its people, and that's all that we can expect. Yes. Yeah, you would think those of us who were weird in middle school would have learned that lesson a long time ago. Like, I am not for everyone. But that's okay. I'll find my people, and it'll be great. We don't need anybody else. I was very weird. a fellow person who was weird in middle school. And oh, God, I was still, so... Never, never grew out of it. I really did Were any of us normal in middle school? I, I think the Venn diagram of mm. science fiction fantasy writers <laughs> and people who are weird in middle school, that's it's, a circle. That's a circle. <laughs> that's a circle. Yeah, circle. That's what I'm saying. So you'd think we all would have learned this lesson. No. But no. No. And no. I do like when we can apply our areas of expertise and hyperfixations to our fiction because... I think, yes. I think that happens with a lot of us. Like we go deep on something and we're like, oh, well now I have to either write an entire book around this or find a way to cram this like one little fact that I'm obsessed with right now into whatever I'm currently writing <laughs> one way or another. That's exactly why I'm currently working on a fantasy book about theater people because. Ooh, that sounds really intriguing. Right, what you know. <laughs> Marsh and I are know. both working on theater books, very different kinds of theater books, but very oh. we are we were both theater kids and theater adults, so therefore, therefore that's what that's what we're both doing. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> send me those those titles when they come out. Oh, for sure. <laughs> Not a theater person, but I love reading about the theater world. <laughs> it's a special place, much like the ocean. Hey, segue back to topic. Segue. So good at that. It's great. <laughs> So, so sort of thinking about like what what writers do well or don't do well, what are some opportunities that, that we miss if we are not thinking enough about including the ocean in our world building? What sorts of things do you often find that just sort of get not even thought about, not even gotten wrong, but like not enough people even know to think about the effect that it might have when they are constructing a, a whole world that, that their people live in and presumably there's water on somewhere? Yeah, that it's that's something too that I guess it really for me it depends on what type of book they're writing. Like something that I think when people are writing sci-fi that takes place on alien planets, um, for me one opportunity to really show how unique a world can be is to highlight how different or how similar the oceans are from Earth. But also it's like you, you can get really, really far into that because then I start to wonder, wow, is this planet tectonically active? You know, like <laughs> how it, it yeah, because like the oceans essentially, you know, the oceans are linked to weather and they're linked to the atmosphere and they're linked to just so many things that you can really take a deep dive into that. And you know what? Maybe you should. Maybe that would really help you try to work through the other aspects of whatever alien planet you're writing. If you think about, well, how does how do all of the different biomes connect to each other? And like, how does the aquatic as, uh, side of this planet connect to the land side? And um, is there a lot of interactions between the two? And it can kind of the depth can just really increase if you think about that. But uh, when people are writing 
are trying to think of worlds that take place either in like an alternate version of Earth or in an Earth-like space. For me, writing uh, in particular indigenous futurisms and and what the future of the Earth may be, it's it's important to wonder, well, how does the ocean contribute to that, especially in terms of its connection with things like climate change can be quite considerable. But also we rely on the ocean for a lot of resources. Um, it's it's important for trade. There's so many so many communities or of people are actually based along like the coastlines of of continents just because the ocean you know it's there and then those are big populations so it's it's something where i i i don't think that absolutely every story should be like oh the ocean the ocean 100 percent the ocean or even like a lot of ocean but when they do i i really enjoy reading about it uh and I think that it can provide a lot of inspiration too. Like if you're looking for inspiration, just read some papers about the weird stuff that that occurs in the deep ocean environment. Well, I think about things like um, in Star Trek planets, especially like the the older series, when they have a new planet and they show us the new planet, the way you know it's an alien planet <laughs> is because, oh, the oceans are purple. <laughs> Instead of blue. And like, that's, that's how you know. But then I sit there and I think like, Okay, but what does that mean? Like, is the chemical composition radically different? Is <laughs> is there some mineral? Like, what what are, are the, the oceans, other implications? Are the oceans made of purple Kool Aid? How did are this they, occur? It's got to be. It's got to be like there's got to be purple plankton. Just a hundred percent of the surface ocean is full of purple plankton. <laughs> That's a good question. So it's like it's one of those things that like visual media sometimes just makes the choice and 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 does the thing. But being the kind of person I am, I'm like I want to know why. I'm not very good at science, yeah. but I want I want someone smarter than me to tell me tell me what this might mean and and how then yeah it could be used in a story. What if you do have a world where the the, the oceans are so thick with purple plankton that yeah. it has an impact on how people live their lives? I definitely would and and yeah because the color of the ocean is all about like the the absorption of like different wavelengths of light and blue happens like if you look at water like a cup of water, like it's, it's not like bright blue, like the Sargasso Sea, but so yeah, it's, I guess if there was going to be a purple ocean made out of water, there'd have to be like something in there yeah, I was like, in, this, in the surface. Or, or yeah. like maybe something with the atmospheric, like so that from like outside, it looks like this, like the light has filtered differently, which then like, what does that mean mm -hmm, for the atmosphere? Mm -hmm. Yes. Is that actually? Yes. Not that we worry about having breathable atmosphere. You don't know what's out there? Is there air? Track. No. <laughs> it's all fine. It's very... Just, just beam on, my beam on in and find out. <laughs> yeah, it's very hand-wavy. I'm remembering, too, you were saying about, you know, societies being so based around oceans and water. And I, was, I can't remember what the exact percentage was, but, like, especially um, Australia. Something, like, it's, mm -hmm. just, it's a wildly disproportionate portion of the population lives within like five miles of the coast and it's just it's just because because they need it they 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 that's where the stuff is and the rest of the land is so deeply inhospitable <laughs> yeah and like oceans versus rivers and and how have different societies evolved to take advantage of one kind of water resource versus the yeah. other is, is also really interesting yeah and i was thinking too like even when you when you talk about areas of high productivity in the ocean like so much of it is concentrated for example australia you have the barrier reef and there's so much uh biodiversity concentrated within reef environments compared to like you go out to the middle of the ocean like a thousand feet down you're not going to get as much variety as you do as you go off to the reefs and so then that makes you think wow the reefs are are in trouble right now. You know what? What are we gonna do? Because <laughs> that can that can be seriously uh, devastating in the future. And so, uh, for me, like a lot of a lot of the the sci-fi I write is thinking, okay, well, how can we cope, but also address some of the issues that we are really noticing are taking off today? But yeah, it's a it's definitely something I can talk about. Is like when you think about the ocean. It seems almost just like one big body of water, and really, you know, really it is. But a lot of that is controlled by proximity to to land, to continents, and also like depth itself, because of the the depth that sunlight can penetrate affects what type of 
organisms live within that area of water. So like when I was floating off of that research vessel and thinking about the stuff under my feet, well, the stuff within the sunlit area of of the surface ocean, like I guess the epipelagic zone, it's going to be very different from the stuff that lives in the bottom of the ocean, you know, like 3,600 meters down and that, that crushing pressure. Um, so I, I, I'm a little bit biased, but I, I love to read stories where they try to envision complex life and, and um, alien organisms that are capable of, of living at the great pressures and the cold and the depth of the deep sea. <laughs> Tell us about some of the weirdest, scariest things down there. Are you <laughs> sure, Cass? Scare me, sure. Scare me. Give me nightmares right now, Darcy. I, I, so I like, I kind of love the things that do live in the deep ocean, but my, my favorite kind of weird fact are there's these these areas that um, there are these hydrothermal vents. Um, so these these occur um, usually along like two plates uh, where there's magma near the surface. Uh, so basically water seeps down through the crust and it gets heated up by this magma. It gets super heated. And during the process, um, elements leach out into this water and this superheated water rises again and like shoots out of these little chimney stack looking things called these hydrothermal vents. Um, and this water can be like warmer than 700 degrees Fahrenheit. So like the bottom of the ocean tends to be very cold, like near freezing cold. But then you get these areas where suddenly there's this super hot like water shooting up and it's it's saturated with with things like sulfides. And so what I find really interesting is when we think about primary production or the ability of an organism to convert inorganic carbon like CO2 into organic uh, carbon, like you know, sugars, like, essentially that's what plants do. They photosynthesize CO2 and sunlight and H2O, like they, they go over, they make sugars and uh, they release oxygen. And it's, it's just, it's such an important element of primary production on earth. And we get a lot of that type of photosynthesis happening in the surface ocean where things like phytoplankton, uh, algae, are in contact with the sunlight, but at the bottom of the ocean, there's there's no sunlight when you go down to uh, thousands of meters, you know, under the surface. So there's actually a a form of primary production uh, called chemosynthesis, and a form of this occurs around these hydrothermal vents. So these bacteria are able to convert the the sulfides and uh, you know, CO, CO2, and let me make sure I get this right, yes, and oxygen, into forms of organic carbon. And that, that to me is so cool. But what's even cooler is, so these bacteria can do this. Well, sometimes they have a symbiotic relationship with a larger animal. And what I love is our uh, giant tube worms. They have no digestive system. They're these big tube worms. Um, they kind of look like these white tubes with these little red feathers sticking out the top. Those are their gills. And they grow near hydrothermal vents, and they're full of these bacteria that can do chemosynthesis. Um, so essentially, it's this symbiotic relationship between these bacteria and these big tube worms. And, but what I find really like kind of creepy about them is if you cut them open, like they, they bleed. Uh, but that's because like, you know, in, in the human, <laughs> we use blood to transfer things like oxygen, you know, like hemoglobin. Well, that's very similar to what they do. You know, they, they need to transfer stuff down to those little bacterias. So it's just such an alien type of, of just primary production, but also uh, the sustenance of, of, higher levels of, uh, of the uh, food chain, um, because you do get around these vents, things like mussels and stuff tend to cluster. And, uh, and it's, it's like, I'm not going to say they're the same as coral reefs because they aren't, but they are these really cool little, little areas where there's uh, a higher biodiversity than maybe outside of the, right outside of the hydrothermal vent area. So another thing is they can just, you know, um, they could disappear if, if for whatever reason the the uh, act, the geothermal activity isn't active anymore, you know they go away. And yet, 
these very specialized hydrothermal vent organisms find a way to colonize other hydrothermal vent areas as they as they pop up. So I think that's that's pretty neat too. <laughs> that is cool. That's such that's a like so cool. you know just a life finds a way sort of thing. And one of the, one yes, of the, it really is. Like one of the coolest <laughs> things about life on this planet is that it will try to survive in the most inhospitable atmospheres, and I think that's neat. So even as it terrifies me, I think it's really cool that there's stuff down there that does that. I always find just like fascinating is that like every time um, I watch any documentary about the ocean, and maybe this is just like David Attenborough putting me on, Darcy, you can tell me if it's like, no, we've known this forever. But it's like every every new one that comes out, it's like, we didn't think this was going to be as diverse as it was. Like there's way more here than we thought there was going to be, or we didn't think that this could survive. It turns out that we do have these kinds of critters, you know, living here. And it's just, it's fascinating to me how much we don't know and how, when we get surprised, it always does seem to go when the life finds a way direction rather than the like, Nope, nothing here, nothing to see here. Like, no, it's, it's, it is very inspirational in a way for thinking about second worlds and thinking about sci-fi worlds and alien worlds. Like, no, you can. It, it can be weird, like because it's it's weird here. So get weird because I forget who the sci-fi writer is, but somebody who recently had a book with a bunch of aliens, and they were somebody was like, "This is so amazing! How did you come up with all these weird, wild aliens?" They're like, "It's really just ocean life." <laughs> I, I just it, um, took it from was from, it Essa Hansen's Nofet Gloss? Yeah, because I think I think it that Essa has said that about about um, that. But yeah, I was just that, pretty much ocean it. life. Yeah. Way back when I was doing the uh, Armadillo Con Writers Workshop years ago, when I was just a student there, uh, the guest of honor was Julie Trinada. And she did this writing exercise where she just wrote all these weird animal facts. And most of them were like weird deep sea ocean and just passed them out. And it's like, come up with an alien that this is their thing. <laughs> and I'm like, this is the best, like little workshop thing to do ever i might steal that exercise the next time i'm working with students because that sounds hilarious i mean it really is like truth is stranger than fiction like if you ever think about all this like the weird ass crap that is down there like i i took my kids to the aquarium um in chicago over winter break which i should not be trusted in an aquarium because i spent like (laughs) way too long in front of my new favorite fish which is the bearing wolf fish which Cass you would enjoy because it looks like a muppet oh and this fish it looks like it looks like a moray eel mated with a muppet is really what this thing looks like i mean a moray eel looks like a muppet already <laughs> but even even more so it's kind of lumpy it's really, anyway and i'm like you know i just i i would never have made this up if someone had made this up, I would have been like, oh, I don't believe it. That sounds ridiculous. But no, like the stuff that's actually there is so much stranger and more marvelous and more interesting than any of the stuff we've made up about the ocean. Like we've made up like mermaids. So, okay, half fish, half person. Not that creative, really, <laughs> if you think about it. Like we've made up just making things big, giant sea monsters, you know, giant sea serpents. N- not not that creative either but you actually get down there like oh my goodness this stuff is it's bizarre it's wonderful <laughs> i love seeing um these these like live cam like streams of mabari when it goes when they send down like a like a little camera to the bottom of the ocean you see all these like benthic organisms and stuff it's like when i'm writing i like to have one of those if, if it's going on one of those live stream things just playing in the corner of my computer computer screen um and and sometimes they they find like a really fascinating crab and then they just like focus on this crab and adore the crab for a while uh, but yeah one thing that is cool about those is that a lot of times what we know about especially deep sea fish and other like the blob fish like that that what people mostly think of the blob fish is actually what happens after decompression so like a lot of these by putting cameras down there into the deep ocean we're able to see them in their healthy natural state and um i i recently saw a video of an angler fish and it was just so beautiful like it was surrounded by bioluminescence and um i had no idea that these these fish could be so beautiful normally they're they're quite uh to human standards, very creepy looking. Um, but like in in the in the water, it's almost like they they flow. That is where they belong. They were they were designed to live there, <laughs> or I guess 
they uh they were they evolved to live there i should say in, in either case that is that is where they uh-huh. they shine both literally and figuratively uh-huh. i was so sad when i learned about the blobfish i was like oh. you poor little thing who did that's terrible <laughs> who did that to you stay under there be free yeah if we are if we are thinking about being somewhat fantastical or alien in our world building, what are elements that we should be thinking about in terms of crafting underwater worlds or underwater life? I think that something that I would recommend during the crafting process is that people go out and buy like an intro oceanography book. <laughs> and uh, I say this myself because sometimes I do go back and read the one that I that I got when I was an undergrad uh, because like it's the basics of oceanography. It's not it's it's not science that's you know constantly like new new information coming in. Because if you want to read that, we'll just read some scientific papers. But just throughout the process of reading uh, about our oceans, I think there's a lot of inspiration there, and it can come from surprising places. Like I talk about how one time I read a a paper. It was about this underwater cave that was its confirmation was almost hook like such that it trapped some water within it some very old water and you know for scientists that's fascinating because you could go what's the chemical composition of this very old water compared to the water outside of the cave and make a lot of you know you can make a lot of kind of by the comparison what the world was like when that old water you know was not trapped in the cave um, and just reading that, though, I was like, well, what if there is this like deep sea creature that had like a mouth like that? And so it's it's things like that. Um, but also for for me, I, I so even though I worked on a research vessel, I have to say the, the scientists, me and the other scientists weren't the ones who were keeping the ship like in shape. And um, <laughs> that world, when I try to think about how how many things that that have to go into keeping a ship from you know on course and especially if your world takes place in a in a in a time or a place with less technology than we have now i i that's something that that i definitely have to research when i want to write that because there's a lot of considerations even down to i remember when i was i was working in the lab just the vibrations of the ship would cause like the screws to to uh, loosen. And so I always had to be checking and, and tightening the screws and the equipment and making sure that um, everything was in you know top shape. Um, so there, there's ship a, shape. a, I guess- Ship really shape as it were. Oh my gosh, how did I miss that? This is why you are the podcast. I restrained Sorry. myself, you two. I restrained I myself. do it, okay? I saw it on your face, Cass. <laughs> yeah, that's, uh, I'm going to use that next time. <laughs> no, that's fascinating though. Yeah, that's like the realities yeah. of life on a ship that I think unless you live it, there's probably a lot that, doesn't even make it into things that are written about living on boats yeah. like because it's just so normal to people for whom that is their life i'm just like thinking about it like we um my husband is a, a navy engineering officer and we just cleaned out the ah. basement and like he he all of his stuff is digitized now so he didn't need the binders of information that he had to like memorize but i'm talking like three or four banker boxes of binders of like how ships work and like all the stuff that you have to consider in terms of maintenance and if you're designing something and and like how rust affects things and it was just like and how salt water affects things yeah it was i mean the, the things you don't think about like you were saying unless you're unless you're there you know yeah how how is salt water going to affect your systems is that is that going to cause problems that you're going to have to address more frequently like it's it's funny that we think of the ocean as being inhospitable because it's a big expanse of something we can't breathe. But like, there's more ways in which it's inhospitable to whatever we're trying to do on it. I have to say, I once actually this was pretty recently. I spent um, two weeks, a little under that, on a on a 
basically a boat where you couldn't shower. And so like <laughs> if you aren't familiar with <laughs> with the ocean, you might think, oh, there's water everywhere. Just jump in the ocean. You'll be nice and clean. Oh, no. I was so gross by the end of that. It's, it, it, my hair was just so like stringy. My my skin felt like... Uh, oh, so like baby it, wipes uh, only go it, so far. <laughs> mm -hmm, yeah. I was happy to get in some fresh water and just wash wash all that off. But yeah, that's that's something if, if you haven't tried to bathe in the ocean, you might not know how uh how gross you can be after like two weeks of that. <laughs> I remember when I was watching Lost and they were often just like, Oh, we're just dipping in the ocean. I'm like, you would have such saltwater rashes after like three days, let alone you would not be sexy after two weeks. <laughs> just be gross. Just gross. That's all. <laughs> just embrace the gross. Just I like speaking of gross, like I'm one of those people. Okay, I, I get seasick. I'm gonna say that if I don't have, if I don't have medicine, like uh, stuff like Dramamine works really well for me. So if I take that, I'm fine. But when I first started research, uh, and I did my first long trip, I did not have that that medicine because I did not know I'd need it. So I was. You I was, don't know until you know. Yeah, and I gotta say, the first like ten hours were fine, and then oh my gosh being seasick it's like miserable mm -hmm. and i was trying to study plankton because a lot of times basically research vessels like they're they're expensive like so all the scientists they they're working at night they're working day they're working whenever they can work and and are we don't have a lot of time in other words to get a lot done so like i couldn't take a break so i was i was vomiting so i was like i i, I was studying these little tough looking plankton trichodesmium tufts um, and using a teeny tiny little loop to like pull them out of the water. And I would be doing that. And then like, I would get sick. And so I would just kind of turn over and like vomit in a wastebasket and then continue working. Uh, but you know, if you want to enrich your story, <laughs> just the, uh, but you want to be miserable, then maybe get seasick and then up, like make a character who gets seasick. Now that's what I do. I, I, I don't want it to go to waste all that suffering. So I'm like, <laughs> at least one character, if I write a a boat, is going to be sick on it. This is this is how we this is how we process and justify all of our our unpleasant to traumatic experiences. <laughs> as we yeah, write them in. It goes into the it was story. research. It's, it's fine. fine. <laughs> that's a good one though, because that's a that's a you know physical thing that that can't just be instantly overcome or wished away except perhaps with medication but if your character for some reason doesn't have that but they have to do something on this boat like you can take that tragic you can take that comic of them trying to like still do their thing while being horrifically sick that's that's a good element yeah because it's like you can't stop the ocean from oscillating <laughs> <You really> no <laughs> just that that boat's gonna be rocking <laughs> Or, or there's a mad scientist who's trying to stop <laughs> the ocean oscillating because yes. his villain origin story is getting seasick and embarrassing himself in front of like a class. Oh gosh, I did that once in a different boat in front of my grad advisor. Oh. We, we were in Italy <laughs> for a conference and she was like, yeah, let's go take a day. Let's go to go a couple hours out to the water. Well, so we got on the boat and I was like, two hours, I'll be fine. I was not fine right in front of her all over myself. Oh, no. oh. Anyway, I, I I'm, don't want this podcast to be gross, so maybe I should stop talking about that. I'm sure we've done worse. But I'm sure, we've, yeah. We've totally done worse. Yeah, that's good. Yeah, we've talked about sewers and things. and yeah, We've, we've done worse. It's a little something for the, the writers who who want that nitty gritty. Who want, who want that, that little bit of verisimilitude of, of the ship yeah. life is like. I, mean, I did have to... <laughs> And clean, <laughs> clean my jeans in the ocean. <laughs> I feel like I feel like motion sickness is one of those like it's not universal, but universal enough that yep, I'm sure yep. many of us are nodding <laughs> along, going like, "Oh yes, <laughs> yeah." <laughs> I'm just always too blinded by terror to be sick. So <laughs> oh, no. every time I've been on a boat, it's just like my husband swears by Oreos. Really. He had Oreos. some fatty officer tell him, if you eat an Oreo when you oh. are starting to feel sick, it'll make you feel better. And he swears it works. And I'm like, I feel like that shouldn't work. But 
I wonder if it's okay. just the pure psychosomaticness of it. Like, <laughs> or is there something about the sugar? I want to. I want to study now. I want to yes. about the sugar. I mean, that, or... that that cream is pure chemicals, so it's probably it's made of dramamine. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> Who knows? Yeah. But I I could see that being just just the placebo. Placebo. Yes. Thank you. Just you know, it's like yeah, if you eat an Oreo, it works, and like because you were told it works, yep. it works. And, but yeah, yeah, I think like having those like. You know what? What are what are the folk remedies of of your people for seasickness or whatever other ocean related maladies you have? If you're a culture that is right. on the water a lot or next to the water, like you're going to have to have solutions to these problems. We are coming up to the end of our hour, so yeah. we always want to before we sign off with our guests, Darcy, ask us ask them to leave us with a little bit of trivia for the world that we are building together um kind of quasi live on air so we would love to get a piece of world building free from you it does not need to be related to our topic today though of course we'd be delighted if it was so <laughs> all right i'm gonna go plankton because I... so love in it. this world there are bioluminescent plankton um, and there's a, a certain species of bioluminescent plankton that gathers off a cove at the same time under the full moon um, every year. And people go to the cove and they have a little holiday to celebrate them. <laughs> I, don't know. I need to get really more. I, that was just me thinking off the top of my head. But honestly, that is some uh that's not detailed world building so like i need to think about what the holiday name is what they eat what the plankton's name is who uh who, who wants to be who wants the plankton to be named after them? <laughs> like, let me just do that now let let's uh let's name it um let's name it after one of Renwin's cats yeah i was gonna say flossy bobbin was the cat that we had earlier maybe it's named after flossy bobbin somehow <laughs> f bobbin that's the scientific name of these plankton <laughs> And they kind of they kind of glow this ethereal blue, Ooh. especially like you know like the bioluminescent plankton we have here. Like when when uh, they are disturbed, that's when you see them. Wait, that's when it. they bioluminesce when they're disturbed. Well, a lot of times, like if you ran your hand through the water um, during one of these blooms of bioluminescent, like you would see that kind of blue glow where you where you run your hand so that's that's one reason why i guess people like to take like kayaks and stuff out during oh. these events well that seems mean <laughs> oh <don't laughs> seems they're mean. not emotionally disturbed I mean, okay just Maybe physically yeah yeah what's up <laughs> <laughs> yeah um Oh, I love now, it. I now I'm imagining. Love. Now I'm imagining like plankton societies and like what if they evolved but still remained essentially plankton Ooh. and we're trying to communicate. Yeah. <laughs> or really, just any species communicating so through bioluminescence like... would be really neat. That'd be really cool. Like I would see that because like to be plankton, you really just have to be drifting with the currents. So like you can have like societies that evolve that they drift wherever the you know these these critters they drift where the current sends them like they're not swimming direct places but so like the the whole thing is they'll have to be able to cope with that just that constant change in where they are situated at any given moment gosh that there's a metaphor for something there there's a <laughs> there's a good theme for a story somewhere in that Love yes it. i like <laughs> that i wish well, i could I, communicate by bioluminescing that'd be fun Somebody bumps into you and you glow. You're too close. Oh. You're too close. <laughs> <laughs> or you have different colors for different emotions. So people know like, ooh. It's like, ooh, you're sexy. I like that. I'm going to glow green for you. <laughs> I like the way cuddlefish, <laughs> cuddlefish yeah! change. Yeah. That'd be great. That'd be so much fun. <laughs> It'd make life so much easier. <laughs> I'm going to I'm have to make an alien species at some point that does that now. Yes. I would always be camouflaging. I just like turn whatever color the wall is so that like, people can't see me. <laughs> so let me let me write in peace. Well, thank you so much for joining us, Darcy. This has been an absolute delight. I feel like we've only scratched the surface of all of the amazingness that the ocean we, has to offer for our world. We have building. we haven't plumbed the depths. We have not plumbed the depths. We didn't dive deep. Shape, we didn't do a deep dive. Deep into the abyss. I'll see myself out. So uh Yes, if you ever want to come back and chat again about oceans and world building and plumbing the depths of a deep dive of world building. 
Look, I managed not to make any Little Mermaid jokes this entire time. <laughs> we were spoiling it. Hurry. No, there was one point where you were saying something that was, or if it was, if it was Darcy or Winona that was saying something, and and I really wanted to say, uh, are you telling me that life under the sea is better than anything they got up there? And I did. Just I wanted to badly, Beautiful. and I didn't, but now I have. So you held you held back until now, and we admire your fortitude. We didn't even talk about mermaids and stuff. I like, ah, uh, <laughs> I feel there really is a lot. <laughs> I love seeing things like on Tumblr or whatever that's like people trying to do like scientifically accurate quote unquote mermaids or like what would mermaids look like if they were more, more able to actually yes. exist under the ocean. Like the creepy lanternfish yeah. mermaids and all uh, those. I, I, have, I feel like they all like there was the whole kerfuffle of the like, can we have a black mermaid? And I was like, I feel like we need to transcend all these arguments and just have an octopus mermaid who changes colors. Like, so for it. We can have whatever you so want. It. It's a mermaid, people. <laughs> it can be whatever. More octopus mermaids. Yeah, these are <laughs> or Ursula. Ursula should change colors. She should yeah. change colors. Yeah, she massive she, she missed cool opportunity. Well, I feel like we we could go on ad nauseum. <laughs> on mermaids and all sorts of other things but we should probably let you get back to writing and planktoning darcy and thank you so i i have 1.5 weeks before my editor needs my draft (laughs) well we're honored you made time for us in the middle of that so much delight it's fun to talk to y'all this has been an absolute delight Hi you, thanks for listening to this episode of World Building for Masochists and letting us help you overcomplicate your writing life. Our next episode goes up on March 1st where Suyi Davies Okumboa joins us to talk about intersectionality and world building. If you want to know more about your hosts and the fantastical books we write, including Cass's latest, The Bloodstained Shade, my new novelette, Ulta Chaya, or pre-ordering Rowena's The Fairy Bargains of Prospect Hill, Links to all of that information is on our website at worldbuildingformasochists.podbeam.com. We really hope you liked this episode. If you did, please do take a minute to tell a friend, shout about us on the internet, or leave a review on iTunes. If you've got questions or just want to tell us how cute we are, there's a number of ways to contact us. We're on Twitter as at worldbuildcast, and our email is worldbuildcast at gmail.com. We also have a Discord chat room linked in the About the Show page of our website if you want to come and chat with us and other fans of the podcast. We'd love for you to share the worlds you're making and help us all build until it hurts.